Dr. John Marriott. Um, he's, he was a Taba professor for me. I think I barely passed his class. Um, and then he continued to hang out with me because he needed, he know I needed him. And then uh, he helped out with Epic and crew a few times preaching there. And um, now he's starting a college and it's, it's, um, it's really geared towards college students who are going to another college but wants a Christian perspective. And all, all the credits are transferable. And so for me, when I went to UCI, I always hoped to take a class on apologetics or a class on you know, the life of Jesus and have a Christian uh, a professor in paradigm teaching. And so he's offering that uh, to all of you guys who are interested. And we'll make sure all the units transfer over. But anyways, John, would you come up and uh, lead us in God's word this morning? <clears throat> I stand here, can you see me? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah. We have a lot to cover today, and uh, so I don't want to take up too much time, but I do want to say thank you to Wilson for having me, uh, to having me come and be part of your very special day today. It is true that Wilson and I were in the same class together. I was a professor at Talbot, and you are all in good hands. Wilson was a C-minus student, so... <laughs> Yes. Uh, no, he was much more than that, and uh, it's, really, it's really exciting and thrilling to see so many people. I've heard about the church. I've been over at Fullerton a little bit, and a couple, he's opened up the door for me to go to a couple different epic uh, events, and, and so I want to thank him for being able to be here this morning. Uh, let me just clarify a little bit and give you just a little bit of information about what he had mentioned. Uh, I am starting what's called the Center for Christian Study off of the campus at UCI, it is essentially like a Christian junior college. That's what it operates as. And briefly, uh, it looks like this. Uh, for high school students who are going into college, who are planning on going to a JC, we offer a full freshman year, 30 to 36 units of general education courses that are, that are through Point Loma Nazarene University. But they're all general ed courses. They would be history, English, math, uh, World Civ, uh, Music Appreciation, and then we have a couple uh, electives that would be, uh, they're kind of like Old Testament Survey, New Testament Survey, but they're underneath the Religious Studies departments. Those courses will transfer because they are accredited underneath the same accrediting agency that all the Cal State and UC schools are. And the reason why we do this is there are three reasons. One is because I teach at Biola, I graduated from Biola, and um, so I can, I can pick on Biola. Um, Biola is expensive. And if you're a Christian student and you want to go to a Christian university, it's about $35,000 to go to any one of the ones in Southern California. But we can give you a full freshman year of those exact same fully accredited courses for $11,000 and let you pay on a monthly basis. For students who want to go to a big Christian school, we can at least save you $20,000 in your first semester, your first year. And then you can transfer out after us. The second reason why we do it is because we know that um, he, Wilson called me doctor. But, um, I, I, yeah, I am. It's really kind of weird to hear that. Um, but um, uh, my dissertation was on deconversion, people who were once Christians and pretty committed Christians and now who are pretty committed atheists. 
And the stats all show that the vast majority of people really lose their faith because they're ill-equipped to prepare for the challenges that college presents them. What we want to do is to say, hey, if you're a Christian going into college, maybe give us your freshman year. We'll give you the world from a Christian perspective and expose you in a safe environment to all of those challenges that you'll experience when you step into an English course and they tell you that there's no meaning in a text or when you, you, you right? Uh, you know, and so some of you who have, are, are in college have experienced some of that. We know that there's lots of Christians who go through college and have great experiences. We think that Christians should go to, Christ, should go to public institutions. We want to help you be prepared to do that. And the third group is for those who say, I want to do maybe both of those, or I'm planning on going to a JC anyway, but I would like to do it in a small cohort, about 30 students max, where we can have professors really pour their life into you, and we can do things as a sort of a family community group, have meals together, uh, go on retreats, do camping trips, have uh, movie nights, do public lectures, do service projects together. Now, those wouldn't be mandatory, of course. So if those are things that you're interested in, or if you're a high school student, uh, all of those courses are also open to you. If you're a homeschooler, this is perfect because it allows you to sort of get double credit. You can take individual courses and you can be a, a student uh, in your high school, fulfilling your high school diploma requirements, and then you will also have a transcript from Point Loma, which is really important. When you leave the study center after one year, you leave as a full-time Point Loma student with a full-time uh, transcript from Point Loma. It is not like some dorky study center transcript that you go to UCLA with and they go, Who are, who's this, right? So, um, so thank you for just letting me share that. I wouldn't have brought it up except he brought it up and completely mangled what we do. Um, <laughs> but he is right in this. If you do want those kinds of courses and you are in college, you can come to us and just say, I would like to take your philosophy course. I would like to take your ethics course and your intro to sociology course. And then those will transfer back in to whatever university you're already attending. Okay, enough said on that. We're talking about the resurrection today, and uh, it's hard to get through that in the, the next 20 minutes or so. And uh, Wilson said uh, yesterday, uh, he texted me about 9.30, in the, 9 o'clock in the morning and said, hey, do you have a sermon on the resurrection that we can, you can do tomorrow? Uh, I'm in a bind. And, and uh, he asked me to do it from kind of an apologetics perspective. You know, is there really reason to believe in the resurrection? And so I said, yeah, I, I can do that. And um, I cobbled together a couple of resources, and so here we are. What we're going to do this morning is two things, hopefully. We're going to take a look at kind of contemporary scholarship and where, uh, what, what the majority of, believe it or not, scholars from a wide variety of uh, places on the spectrum, from conservative evangelical to uh, atheists, tend to believe about the resurrection. And then we will say, okay, so what's the best explanation for these facts that the vast majority of people accept? We'll move from there and then say, okay, how can we apply this in maybe a conversation with someone or in a dialogue with uh, someone? And this application will help you also, not in just talking about the resurrection, but any aspect of your faith or when you're having a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse, because um, it's, it's, it's a helpful tool uh, just for communication purposes across the board. This is not some sort of uh, slimy uh, salesman technique, you know, that they teach you in like evangelism, you know, 501 or something like that. Okay, so what we'll do first is let me pray and then we'll read a little passage of the scripture on the resurrection and then we'll take a look at uh, uh, what, um, where the, what the state of the, the, the matter is uh, in the academy today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you rose from the dead. We believe that because we think that your word teaches that and we have experienced you personally in some kind of a way. We've met you 
and you've changed our life, you've given us a direction and a purpose, you've forgiven our sins, and we know that if it wasn't for the resurrection, then none of that would have been possible. And Lord, we confess that you are the Lord and your word is what determines what's truth for us and that all of the scientific data or all of the historical uh, supposed facts are, are helpful and confirm our faith, but it's not what our faith rests upon. Our faith rests upon you, our encounter with you, and your word. And we uh, affirm that and lift that up today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read some verses out of the book of John, chapter 19. Jesus has just been crucified. He has died. And then in verse 31 of chapter 19, as some of you are turning there, I'll go ahead and, and start reading. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also might believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, that not a bone of him should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him who they've pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of the preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early in the morning to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the tomb, the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon, Peter, and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and as they were going to the tomb, they were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and he came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been set aside. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the other disciples went away again to their own homes." Drop down, if you would, to verse uh, 16. In the interim, Mary has been at the tomb weeping, wondering where Jesus is. She believes that the body has been taken away by the gardener. She says, where have you taken him? Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and to you, your father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
Why in the world would anybody believe that somebody would come back from the dead? All of the evidence in the world will never convince anyone who is uh, opposed to believing that Jesus rose from the dead, that he did really rise from the dead. Right? Uh, our presuppositions, our assumptions about reality always determine the evidence that we're willing to accept. For example, uh, you probably have heard the story of the man who was convinced that he was dead. And he said to his wife, I'm dead. And she said, you're not dead, you're talking. And he said, no, I'm dead. And he told his family he was dead. And none of the evidence that they would present would convince him that he wasn't dead. So he went to a doctor. And the doctor said to him, do you believe that the dead bleed? And he said, well, no, dead people don't believe. And right then the doctor took a pin, stuck it in his arm, and blood started coming out. And the man looked at it and said, well, wouldn't you know it? Dead men do bleed. Our assumptions and our presuppositions sometimes are so, uh, so ingrained in who we are that all of the evidence in the world will not persuade us. If we are convinced that dead people don't come back to life because the dead don't raise and we are living in a material universe and miracles don't happen and everything is by a cause and effect relationship, then of course all of this will never persuade someone. And that's okay. Uh, that's not our job to do the persuading. We're just to be faithful witnesses. Well, the importance of the resurrection certainly can't be understated. Uh, I want to show you, this is a PowerPoint put together by Mary Jo Sharp. Uh, Mary Jo Sharp is a, is a Christian uh, female apologist, and she's one of a number of uh, ladies who are very capable and who are out there now. And uh, I, I picked her because uh, she has a great PowerPoint and also because um, I really think that it's, Fantastic that there are ladies out there doing what's traditionally been uh, a male-dominated area, which has been making a case for the Christian faith. If you're interested in finding out more about Mary Jo, Confident Christianity is her website. Okay, the resurrection, of course, is the foundation of Christianity. If Christ isn't dead, we're still in our sins. If Christ isn't raised, then we are uh, false witnesses, and God is not happy with us. Am I pressing the right button? Oh, ooh. Well, here's what we're going to ask this morning. What is the best explanation for the resurrection? Uh, we think that there are uh, certain facts that you can do a really good job of establishing. Can't prove that they're 100% true, but you can do a really good job establishing. And then you have to ask, all right, so if these are the facts, what's the explanation that best uh, explains them? In a similar way in a courtroom, we, they say, here's the facts, here's the facts, here's the facts. The best explanation is, is that this guy did it. And you can say, well, no, the best explanation is this, but then you have to show how your hypothesis meets and answers the established facts. Okay, so this is called a minimal facts approach. Can I just ask you to click the button? Okay, thanks. All right. The way that the minimal facts approach starts out, and I need to kind of move a little bit, so sorry that I'm turning my back on you guys just a bit, is this. Um, instead of taking the Bible and assuming that it is an inerrant inspired book, we're going to take the Bible and say, let's just take it like it's a historical document. And, um, and, and, and just for a minute, just for a minute, you know, maybe this is really hard to say, um, you know, Assume as a historian, you're approaching this book and, and, and believing that in all historical documents, there's errors and contradictions, but, but that's just because of human limitations. 
And if you don't prejudice the Bible as a Christian and think that it's inerrant and inspired and start from that perspective, and you do take it and look at it in the same way you might look at you know, a book by Pliny the Younger or Tertullian or Eusebius, um, what can you, using good tools of history, pull out and say, yeah, we think there's some exaggeration here, and we think there's some exaggeration here in some of these historical documents, but it really seems clear that this is a historical point, that Alexander the Great really did do these things, even though we see that there's some things in the biography that we're fairly skeptical of. When you take a look at the Bible from that perspective, which is uh, admittedly a, d a debated perspective, right? Like you might feel a little uncomfortable with that and go, oh, you're asking me to look at the Bible uh, uh, sort of like neutrally. I can't do that. And I really agree that we can't do that. As Christians, I'm not even convinced that we should do that. But it, doing it for the purposes of just the experiment of trying to find out what these minimal facts are might be helpful. All right, so the question is, what is a minimal fact? And here's the definition of a minimal fact. They need to be really strongly evidenced. Next. A minimal fact needs to be multiply attested. There needs to be a, a number of independent sources. Uh, if you have enemy testimony to something in the, in the texts of the Bible, then you might say, hmm, that's probably a good indication that this thing really happened. Uh, if there is a, 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 an element that's embarrassing to the people who are writing the story, it's probably a, an indicator that the event took place because why would you include these embarrassing facts if they didn't really happen? It doesn't build your case. It doesn't help you gain followers. It doesn't win you people to your movement if you're constantly writing about how much of a, you know, of a, a person you are that messed up all the time when you were following Jesus. Um, is it based on eyewitness testimony and how early is the testimony? Okay, and so they need to also be established by a large group of scholars. Remember, these, the, the, there is a, a whole, there's a large group of people who aren't Christians who study the text of the New Testament. There's a whole bunch of folks out there. Bart Ehrman, who's one of the most uh, well-known deconverts from Christianity, who's the chair of the religion department at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, went through Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton, Princeton, and then he lost his faith. And now he's a pretty antagonistic person towards the gospel, uh, but he studies it all the time. And, and there's a whole discipline of these folks who are studying it. So when you include them and you include the most conservative folks, what are the f sort of facts that they're all willing to say, yeah, we think these happened. Now the most conservative folks are gonna say, uh, we think everything in here is actually what really happened. Uh, and the most extreme folks on the other side are, are gonna say, we think almost nothing in there really happened, but if you just use sort of some of the basic tools of history and looking at these minimal facts, both of these extremes generally come together and say, yep, yeah, we're, we're really willing to affirm that these are the minimal facts that we can affirm. Gary Habermas at Liberty University, who is an evangelical, and uh, this is kind of one of his areas of expertise, uh, compiled 1,400 journal articles, everything that has been written on the resurrection, from, again, the most liberal to the most conservative, across the board, uh, the American Association for the Study of Religion, uh, people who there who are atheists, all the way to the Evangelical Philosophical Society, from 1975 to the present, and he identifies basic, four basic minimal facts that they all tend to agree on. Now, what we're not saying is that these facts prove the resurrection, because it's really difficult to prove anything. But what we are saying is, if we're agreed on these general facts, what's the best hypothesis that explains it? And once you start going down that road, it really seems like, unless you're 
you have this real bias against the resurrection, um, it's the resurrection that's the best explanation for the facts. Okay, minimal fact number one. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Uh, just about everybody agrees with this, unless you think that Jesus did not exist. Uh, all right, so you have over here, you have those of us in this room who believe Jesus existed and everything in the Gospels about him is an accurate representation. Then you have uh, some people over here who say there was a historical figure named Jesus who existed, but he did almost nothing that the Gospels say that he did. Uh, he, he lived and he was an itinerant teacher, but he didn't do any of that miracle stuff. Then you have people over here who say, well, maybe he did some of that, but he was probably you know, doing some sort of magic and sorcery. There's some Jewish sources that say that that's what, what he did. But then you have the really radical people over here who say there's no historical person of Jesus whatsoever. He didn't exist at all. This is all just made up. It's all baloney. Um, if you, if you get rid of these people on the, on, the, on the real fringe over here, the ones who say Jesus never really existed, everybody else agrees that this Jesus, whether he is a historical Jesus but never did any miracles and just did some itinerant teaching, or he is the, the gospel's Jesus, he was crucified by the Romans, that the Romans killed him. Now, the gospels all represent that, but even if you were to take the gospels aside and, and, and say, but eh, those are all biased, right? Like... We can't really trust those, which I think is a very dubious assumption. Um, look at non-Christian sources. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian who's working for the Romans, talks about Jesus being crucified. Tacitus, the Roman historian, mentions that Jesus or Crestus was crucified. Lucian of Samosota, who's this Greek satirist, who's you know, he's writing for Saturday Night Live of the time, and Mara ben Serapion. And in the Jewish Talmud, they all talk about how that the Romans crucified uh, Jesus. There's hardly anyone who doubts the fact that Jesus was crucified. Next. Uh, John uh, Dominic Crossan, who is kind of one of these guys who is a, he, he, he's a very liberal Christian, which is like kind of theologically that's an oxymoron because you don't believe that Jesus did anything and he certainly didn't rise from the dead. John Dominic Crossan says that Jesus did die on the cross. Nobody really doubts that. It's, it's as sure as a historical fact as anything, right? Because, when, because again, history's not science. You, you can't measure history with a scientific method in the same way that you can't measure the weight of a chicken with a ruler. Like, you, you have to use the right tools. And in science, maybe we can say, depending on your philosophy of science, that, that we can come to a certainty with certain things, like mathematical certainty and physics. You, you can't do that in history. What you have to do is take the historical tools that we have, and we say, as sure as we can be about anything, we're, we're pretty sure that Jesus really was, was crucified. Now, John Dominic Crossan is no fan, though, of the gospel story because he says that after he was crucified, his body was taken down, thrown into a shallow grave, and then eaten by dogs. Next. Uh, okay, so fact number one, Habermas says everybody in these 1,400 articles over this lengthy time period, from rabid atheist to rabid conservative, agree that Jesus is crucified. Next, Jesus' tomb is empty. There is a lot of agreement on this again, and for these three reasons. One is the Jerusalem factor. And what that means is Jerusalem is a small town. Everybody knows where the, 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 the body is buried. And if Jesus was still in the tomb, it would be really easy for them to just go to the tomb and display the fact that he was really there. They could have put the, the, this whole Jesus movement to rest uh, really quickly. They could have dragged it through the streets. Uh, what you don't find in early church writings in, in anywhere is any kind of a defense for why Jesus really was who he claimed to be and why his body was still in the tomb. 
There's nothing like that. There's nothing at all that says Jesus really is the Messiah and all of this talk about resurrection is just spiritual and he spiritually rose and ascended to the Father and that's why his body is still in the grave. You don't find that. But if his body was in the grave, you would think that somebody would have tried to have made that argument. We don't have that. Um, it would be really hard for Jesus uh, and the Christian movement to get started in Jerusalem. Again, it's not a big place. Everybody's knowing what's going on um, if the body was still in the grave because these people start in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, chapter two, they make this incredible proclamation that Jesus has risen from the dead. And all of these people could have just said, no, he didn't, He's, it's right over there. We all know where the grave is. It doesn't happen. So number one, uh, the tomb is empty because the Jerusalem factor. Number two, you actually have enemy testimony that the tomb is empty. Go ahead, next one, please. Justin Martyr has this dialogue with, with Trifo, and Trifo is a, a Jew, and it's, uh, there's debate whether or not he's really a historical person, so that's really important to know. But there's a lot of folks who believe that he was. Eusebius, the early church historian, says that he knew that he was a, a real Jew. There's a, so there's this debate. You need to know that. But in the debate, uh, Trifo, who is a, a Jewish guy, says, well, of course the tomb is empty. The disciples came and stole the body. Uh, he accepts the fact that the tomb is empty, but he's going to come up with a different hypothesis. In Tert uh, Tertullian's uh, spectacles, again, same thing. Enemy conversation with someone who's hostile to the gospel. They don't say that the body was in the tomb. They come up with a hypothesis to explain why the body is not in the tomb. In the Jewish Toldoth, which is kind of late, it's an early mid-Middle um, Ages document, it's written by a Jewish guy, and it's a satirist. Um, he's just, it's uh, incredibly irreverent, and it's blasphemous, and they're making fun of Christians, and they're making fun of Jesus, and they, but they assume that the tomb was empty. This is the tradition that's been passed on, that the tomb has been empty, and the explanation is, why is it empty? Well, going even back to the earliest sources in the gospel, the Jewish leaders tell the, the soldiers, you're going to say his disciples came during the night and stole the body away while they were asleep. Uh, so the, the enemy testimony. And, and actually, the verse goes on to say, and that is the story that is being told even unto this very day as the time of the writing of the gospel. Uh, and the third reason is the testimony of the women. By the way, what time is it? 7.25. Is it really? Yeah. Great. Um, hey, hey, listen, women in the first century were nowhere, I mean, women and men don't have parody in, you know, in America in the 21st century. Um, they had way less parody in the first century. Men would pray things like, dear God, thank you, you haven't made me uh, a Gentile dog or a woman. Uh, women couldn't testify in a court of law, they could only go so far into the temple, they couldn't go outside without a male relative, they needed to be doubly veiled, they couldn't speak to any other male that wasn't in their family or they didn't have an arranged marriage with, they couldn't give testimony in a court of law. Uh, women had it really rough, they were like property in the first century, and yet uh, Jesus does some really radical things with women. You know, this is one of the most radical things that he does, he travels around with women. He doesn't mention it a lot in the Gospels, like these throwaway verses that say, and, and Jesus and the wife of Cusa, Herod's servant, and Mary and the other Mary traveled with Jesus and the disciples and supported them out of their, their, their money. Could you just imagine if Wilson and the, the leaders at the church were just you know, wandering around Fullerton, sleeping in the park, with like two or three women, just paying for them wherever they went, and they're all sleeping in the park together, and... This would be really scandalous, right? Even today. But here's Jesus uh, living in a culture where uh, you know, women shouldn't even be outside without their male relatives. And 
And he's traveling around with these women. And, and, and it's women who discover the tomb. There's no way in a million years, if you were writing this and it was a made-up story, that you would say, hey, I got an idea. I know how we'll really attract a lot of people to our faith. We'll make the primary witnesses to the resurrection these women. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea, right? Okay, you never would do that. Uh, and so people have said, um, if, if it really wasn't women, they would never have put that in there. There's really good reason to believe, therefore, that it was. All right, so you have the, the empty tomb. And third... Uh, the third minimal fact is this, is that, the, that and I want to just change the wording of this uh, just a little bit. Uh, out of these 1,400 articles since 1975, minimal fact, number one, Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Minimal fact, number two, that, is, that the tomb was empty. Minimal fact, number three, that they generally agree on, is that the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. The disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them. Now, most won't go so far to say that Jesus did appear to them because then all of a sudden you've got to, you know, then you have to admit the resurrection. But they will say that the disciples truly believed that Jesus appeared to them for a number of reasons. And, and one is because they make this, they, they claim that he did, first of all. And then secondly, there's this massive transformation that takes place in their life. And, and, and we see that based on just their, the life change that, that takes place and the fact that they're, they're all willing to, to give their life, and, and some of them, uh, most of them do. Next, please. Okay. Um, Peter, Paul, and John, all of whom write either uh, a gospel or an epistle um, that are not doubted, by the way. Right? There's a bunch of letters by Paul that people doubt. They go, oh, Paul didn't write that. Paul didn't write that. Like the more sort of liberal scholarship, they say, yeah, Paul didn't write that. Paul, you know, Peter didn't write Second Peter. It's just really too different. The Greek is different. And yeah, no, no, somebody must have else wrote that. But all the ones that they, even the most skeptical scholars that aren't Christians agree on, have enough information in there that they say, yeah, Paul wrote this, that you have to say, then how do we account for this major change that took place in his life? Like they all believe that he wrote Galatians. Nobody doubts that Paul wrote Galatians. Bart Ehrman, anti-Christian scholar, Paul wrote Galatians, okay? Um, and in there, Paul tells this story about how, you know, um, I, I went into Arabia after I met the Lord, and then from there I went up to meet Peter, and then I investigated with Peter about what the true story of this gospel is, and I shared my gospel with him and told him about my life change, and you can say, so this really happened. Like, Paul really is making these claims. Peter makes the claim. John makes these claims. So you have these eyewitness people making these claims, and, and, and um, the big changes that take place in their life. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, hey, that which I received, I passed on to you. It's a very formal creed. And it goes back really early, within maybe a couple years of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And he says that, that um, Jesus was crucified and that he was buried and that he rose again and he was seen by me and by Peter. Actually, he says by Cephas and by the 12 and by 500 all at one time. And we start looking into that, you go, you know, there's a lot of Aramaic sayings in here. There's a lot of Aramaic words and Aramaic phrases and ways of writing. Why does he use the word Cephas instead of Paul? And you say, this is an actual formal creed that goes back really early to the beginning of the church. And it's written probably in Aramaic. And where do they speak Aramaic? They speak Aramaic up in the Galilee, where Jesus comes from. You have this really early creed. Next. Um, are there any writings that follow the Gospels that talk about the fact that the disciples saw the, uh, Jesus alive? Yes. Okay. Now, now, admittedly, you know, some of these people go back really early and they'll say, we know the disciples. 
Uh, Polycarp says, I knew the disciples. Um, some of them, of course, are, are basing what they claim in their writings off of what they have been told or about other earlier writings. Next. Um, the disciples were transformed. And uh, the last thing there you need to say is nearly all scholarship agree that the disciples had experiences of the risen Christ or what they believed were experiences of the risen Christ. So now you need to explain why. All right, so there's the three facts. Jesus dies by crucifixion, his tomb is empty, and Jesus appeared to the disciples. Next. We're going to skip number four, this one, but number four would be that Jesus really did encounter foes of Christianity after the resurrection, and that's what changed their life. Next. And one more. Okay, so when historians, after they establish, like, look, uh, we're not going to treat the book special. We're going to treat it like we would teach, treat something that was written by Herodotus or Plutarch or Pliny. Um, we expect there to be contradictions. And you know, what do we think really we can say historically happened here? Well, we think that we can say that Jesus was really crucified, his tomb was empty, that his disciples really believed that, the to- that, that they had experienced that the, the risen Christ. Okay, so what's the best explanation of that fact? Next. Right, you have to explain that. Well, when you start looking at the explanations, and we don't really have time, you start saying things like, well, maybe he didn't really die. Maybe they just put him in the tomb, and it was cold, and he came back to life there. And you're like, well, that explains the fact that he was crucified under the Romans, but doesn't explain the fact how there was an empty grave afterwards. Or did the disciples steal the body? Well, that's really hard to account for. Or maybe they all hallucinated. Well, okay, but then why is the tomb still empty? And all of the theories that get proposed have these major holes in them, that explain maybe two out of the three facts or you know, one out of the four facts, but only the fact that Jesus rose from the dead accounts for all of them. Yes, next. Um, and that's why we have confidence that the best explanation is the one that outweighs the rest. And that's why we would say the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation of the facts. Gary Habermas says, now you can come up with all kinds of alternative theories, but you have to have evidence for those theories. You could say, well, maybe aliens stole the body of Jesus. Sure. Or maybe we're all in the matrix. Possible. Or this is like a deep level of inception. Granted, that's all possible, but what reason do we have to believe that? You can't just offer up alternative explanations uh, without saying why those are better explanations. The question always is, what reason do I have to believe? Um, One more, maybe? Okay. If you are interested in learning a little bit more about Mary Jo Sharp um, and finding some of her stuff, I really would like to you know, point you in her direction, confidentchristianity.com. Let me end by just saying this. So you have all of this uh, knowledge that has just sort of washed over you like a fire hydrant right now. And, and you're saying, okay, well, how can I, I use this? Let me take two minutes, whatever time we're at right now, and give you one sort of little bit of a framework to make this practical help, helpful for you. Let's say you're in a conversation with someone and it's around Easter time and they say, you're going to, you say, I'm going to church. And they say, why would you go to church? And you say, well, you know, it is Easter. And they say, so what? And you say, well, we're, I'm going to church because uh, this is the time we, as a church, celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And they say, you don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead, do you? That's really stupid. Jesus didn't come back from the dead. The natural inclination for all of us is to start to defend our position and say, well, yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Well, why do you think that? Because the Bible says so. Well, why do you believe the Bible? Because it's written by God. Oh, well, doesn't it just beg the question that, you know, and then everyone, it's always hard to defend. It's really easy to be a critic, but it's hard to defend. So let me give you three questions that will help you in any conversation. 
Why would you go to the church and remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Easter? Because we all know that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because dead people don't come back from, from, from the dead or whatever. Instead of answering that question, Jesus' approach is almost always to answer a question with a question. Almost always. And I think this is really helpful. It's not a game. It's not a gimmick. It's to help you understand where that person's actually coming from and enter into a dialogue with them that is respectful of their position. If someone were to say to me, why would you go to, that, to church and remember that Jesus rose from the dead because the, that's really stupid because the resurrections don't happen, I would say something like this, what do you mean by stupid? Or what do you mean by don't happen? Like, they've made a claim. It's up, for, up to them to defend that claim. And, and I would say, so what do you mean by it? Because then they can explain what they think, what they mean stupid is. Or they can explain what they mean, you know, do, doesn't happen by. Uh, and, and then the next question I would ask is, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to the conclusion? Because when you ask that question, now you've got clarity as to what they actually think. When you ask the question, how did you come to that conclusion? It will unearth the assumptions that are driving the surface belief. And, the, and well, why, do, why do you think it's stupid? Well, because you know, we all know that miracles don't happen. Ah, okay. Why do you think miracles don't happen? Because we live in a naturalistic universe. Why do you think we live in a naturalistic universe? No, I don't mean to be, you know, I, well, and, because, and until you can get a, 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 a platform where you think that you have something intelligent to say in response, um, and then you might be able to say, uh, you know, for your third question, can you help me understand that if we live in a naturalistic universe, um, why there seems to be so many good reasons to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead? that the best explanation of what seems to be the most accepted set of minimal facts by a broad range of scholars, um, I think, is the resurrection. Now, of course, the broad range of scholars don't all think that the resurrection actually happened. They're willing to ex accept another explanation. And so whenever you find yourself in a discussion with someone, refrain from jumping in and defending. Answer a question often with another question. What do you mean by clarification? How did you come to that conclusion? Because they've made a claim, they need to defend it. Third, can you help me understand? And, and, and you can just wait, you can keep asking those until you find something that you're comfortable with talking about. You, you're not gonna be an expert in the resurrection or on Newtonian physics or quantum mechanics or the reliability of the Bible, but if a person talks long enough and shares enough with the, their assumptions and expectations with you, there's probably something that you can say. It's probably something that you know that you're comfortable with talking about. All right, so that was a whirlwind tour of contemporary scholarship on the resurrection. It's hopefully some practical application. Let me uh, briefly pray, because that's sort of kind of our typical cue that this section is over, and we transfer off into something else. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you rose from the dead. We really believe that you did and that you changed our life. We've met you. And uh, I ask that uh, what we talked about today has been an encouragement to folks and um, maybe a challenge uh, as well. And um, I pray these things and I ask you to bless all those folks getting baptized today in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>